Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Morning, Randy. How's life in Idaho? If it was any better, Ooh. I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, I thought you were going to lay some great line on us here. I, I was trying to think of one. I was like, if it was any better, I'd have to move to Montana or something. But I think it might even be better here than in Montana. Well, if you like lots of wind, right now would be the day to be in Montana. I saw Dorothy and Toto fly by the window here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's I don't know what the deal is. I come home for two days in between trips, and the wind blows so hard it just about blew the paint off my truck last night. But, wow! Oh well. Now, if you see the paint from my truck end up over there, we had the wind uh, yesterday and the day before. So yeah. Actually, the paint from my truck's all on the brush from <laughs> September, so I can't blame that on the wind. But You ever try to hunt elk in this kind of wind? I mean, we're talking today, we probably have 40 to 50 mile an hour winds here. Have you ever had any luck hunting elk in this kind of wind? <laughs> that, those are two different questions. <laughs> yeah, yes, I have tried to hunt elk in those kind of winds. No, I've never had any luck. Uh, well... When we were in Colorado last week, uh, season open on Saturday, and I'd looked at the weather forecast. Saturday was supposed to be this perfect day, and by noon on Sunday, the winds were supposed to get between 30 and 40 miles an hour. So I had the same experiences you've had in hunting in high winds. So I was in a pretty big hurry to try shoot something on Saturday rather than Sunday. Yeah, I know. I hate no, and it's I hate fishing in the wind, and I hate hunting in the wind. Yep, and fishing's probably worse in the wind. At least hunting, you can move around, and fishing, you're just stuck there in the wind, and yeah, can't get out of it. Hunting, uh, we hunted Wyoming a couple of years ago, and had a couple of days of just intense high wind, just that thirty, forty mile an hour sustained all day, mm-hmm. and you can't hear any bugles. You can't. Nothing's going to be out moving. And, uh, you know, we kind of figured out which direction the wind was coming from and then found a couple pockets like the elk have to be getting out of the wind. So let's figure out what the elk are doing to get out of the wind. And once we did that, we got into a couple little basins that were a little bit blocked, you know, more so from the wind. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were able to actually get a couple bulls bugling. Of course, you have to be in pretty close. And <laughs> they weren't super anxious to come into our calls. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit, that I think just that wind being so strong and, and unpredictable, their sense of smell, which is what they rely on, is not as effective. Yeah. And so I think they're just... They hunker down and they're not as willing to take a risk and come into a call. Yeah. I I don't know what it is, but whether it's deer, elk, antelope, I guess antelope, I've had better luck in the wind because they're so fickle. They just go to the lee side of a hill and lay down. And uh, that's a little bit easier. But elk, it's, I I don't know, maybe it's because maybe I, I create my own lack of success about killing elk in the wind because when the wind blows this hard i just say heck with it this is time to get some work done i'll go i'll go elk hunting when the wind dies down 
but and that uh, is you know a luxury that you and I have that uh, a lot of folks don't have you know they get mm -hmm. they get there one week and they're stuck with three or four days of wind or rain or whatever it is and you know you do have to kind of find a way to adapt right. and yeah overcome yeah so I rumor has it that you were uh, just out helping with the hunt of the lifetime there yeah it actually the, the the name of the organization changed this year it's been hunt of a lifetime's the actual organization name and it's a lot easier to say we're going on the hunt of a lifetime because it just makes sense but the organization that we uh, did it through this year is outfitters for hope okay and uh, same same principle they take out uh, children with life-threatening illnesses as well as the children uh, children who have lost a parent in the line of duty, whether it's uh, military wow. or first responder. That's great. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful idea. So you guys, you, you did that in Idaho this year? We did. Yeah, we did it uh, just last week. So Cool. And? Had a great time. The, uh, the young man we took out, his name was Shane, and Shane's 16, and he had, uh, he's killed one elk in his, you know, before this. And, you know, I just, I, I comment every year that this is, I think, our fifth or sixth uh, youth that we've taken out on, on these hunts. And every year, I'm just amazed at the poise they have, at the maturity they have. Uh, they just jump into a group. I mean, when I was 16, you throw me into a group of four or five 40 plus year old adult men yeah. out elk hunting, and I'm pretty intimidated. You know, I just <laughs> I keep to myself. They just they jump right in. They're part of all the conversations, and they don't. It's just I can't say enough about how amazing these kids are. Yeah, well, it's I'm I'm so thankful that you're doing it. Um, it's yeah, and you think about those kids probably have had life experiences as young people that have played their hand or forced their hand to maybe be more mature than I was when I was 16. I No one would have wanted to take me on an elk hunt when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, no, and I think that is a, a big part of it is, you know, they've endured probably more more challenge and hardship than most of us as, as adults have had to face and and come through and he was diagnosed with leukemia uh, it's been a handful of years ago and he beat it and he is healthy and strong he uh, there wasn't a single time that i turned around that he wasn't right on my heels and we hiked i mean that's <laughs> and that's the thing you kind of have to you have to adjust the hunt right. to the to the hunter and sometimes we're literally packing these youth up the hill just from the atv just piggybacking them up 200 yards to get up to where we can get in a position to be able to see an elk or, or something. And so right. it is, I mean, it's every one of them are rewarding, but this one was, was fun because we did get to get out and kind of hunt our style and, and push it pretty hard. And Shane kept right up and wow, made a great time. That's so cool. And he got an elk. 
He did get an elk. And it's, you know, it's these hunts always have some adversity. Yeah. And whether it is, you know, us having to carry him up the hill to get there or not being able to find elk or missing an elk or, you know, just the normal hunting things. But I think for us, when we're out there experiencing that with, uh, with the company that we're in, it just reminds us how good we have it. And, you know, that those challenges are nothing compared to what a lot of people are going through, especially these, these kiddos. So, yeah. um, you know, his, we, uh, he, he, uh, passed up several bulls. Um, most of them were broken this year, which we've never really experienced broken antlers in this area, but for whatever reason, uh, we were finding broken pieces of antlers and just about every mature bull we saw had broken tines. I think, uh, three quarters of the mature bulls we saw had broken beams. Mm. Uh, the biggest bull we saw had his beam broke off on one side, right behind the fourth. And then he was missing his second and third on one side. Uh, he was probably, you know, a 330, 340 type bull, but with wow. all the breaks, you know, he just, he wasn't that appealing to look at. And Shane passed on him. And then we called in a, a really pretty younger six point um, to like, 20 yards and I'm sitting there whispering to Shane we're right in the wide open the bull came in and said what do you think he's like I think I'll pass and uh, so I bugled at it and it took like three more steps towards us right in the open and great great time but then we had a little trouble finding elk they just weren't bugling like they usually do out there this year Uh, Mm -hmm. but we finally found some and got on top of them and took forever for the bull to step out. And when he did, he stepped right in front of a cow, so we couldn't shoot. And uh, he finally <laughs> turned quartering to us. Uh, and Shane got on him, so I think I want to take him. And 150 yards, and he shot. And, you know, he's he's a good shot. We shot before we went on the hunt, and he put three bullets uh, just within an inch and a half area uh, at 150 yards. So cool. wasn't, it wasn't a question of that. So he shot and I didn't hear the impact and the bull took like three steps and turned broadside and said, shoot him again. And so he shot and I heard the impact that time. And then the bull took off running and he shot again. Well, we went down, we couldn't find blood. We couldn't find tracks. We, uh, ended up bumping an elk right there. So we're pretty sure it was the bull. Uh, but we looked for, you know, it was right before dark. We had maybe 15, 20 minutes of, of daylight where we could actually see good enough to, to pretend we were looking for tracks and blood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we ended up 1130 backing out of there and hadn't found it. But the, uh, the, the awesome part about this hunt, aside from the, from the kids that we get to hunt with are the people who go on the hunt. And every year for our camp, it's been pretty much the same core group. It's been myself and Donnie, uh, and then good friends, Russ Meyer and Tony Mudd. Mm-hmm. And, and then cameraman John's always there as well. But, you know, Russ and Tony, if, if I was ever in a situation where I was facing starvation mm-hmm. and I was down to one arrow and, and a bow, yeah, I would call one of those two and send them out to, <laughs> to hunt for me because they are just, and you know, I mean, Tony is, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much I should brag on him because he is very humble, but he is one animal away from the North American Super Slam, Grand Slam, whatever. Every North American animal with a bow. Wow, and just hard worker, blue collar, saves up his money and goes on one or two hunts a year and is just. 
you know, he was, he got his grand slam of sheep with a bow and anyway, just a very accomplished bow hunter and to be able to spend a week hunting with, with men of that caliber on the hunting side, but then on the personal side, they're even, even better men. Yeah. And Tony, Tony was down in the draw and he came up, you know, when we met and he's like, guys, I swear I heard that elk die. He's like, I heard three gasps. It was in the dark. It was in this direction. I've been through there a little bit, but I think we need to go back through there. And I, you know, instantly I said, Hey, if you said you heard an animal die, I know you've heard enough animals die that it's not even a question that elk somewhere on that hillside. Yeah. So we went down in the dark, there were seven of us and we gritted through that in the dark and couldn't come up with anything. And so, you know, it's always hard to back out. Fortunately, it was fairly cool. And, you know, we were confident that if we had to back out, we would find it the next morning, it'd be fine. And so I went back in at daylight the next morning and Tony walked right down the ridge and literally where he had put the pin, where he thought he'd heard the sound, uh, the bull was laying about 10 feet away from it. We'd been within probably 15 or 20 yards of it uh, in the dark, but it was just that high chaparral. And, you know, from down below, you had no chance of seeing it. And in the dark from up above, it was pretty unlikely to see, but yeah. We found it and it, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things. And, and Shane was completely poised when we got back to camp that night. He wasn't crushed at all. He was like, no, I'm, we'll find it. You guys are, you know, he said, we'll find it. So I'm not even going to stress it. We're going to go in there and find it. And yeah. I think for a lot of us, it's easy to get discouraged and start doubting. And yep. he was uh, just a perfect example of, of optimism. And cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh always a a lesson or at least an observation of of watching other people and how they handle their struggles and challenges and remarkable that a 16 year old would be that composed yep cool yeah even on the first shot you know as he was lining up and he had a, a tripod bipod whatever on the that he set the rifle on and he took a stand he was standing and had that rest and i mean he was going through breathing and he'd put his finger up on the trigger and kind of put some pressure you know not to shoot or anything but just feel the trigger and then he'd pull his finger off of it again and i mean it's just amazing to watch you know i know when i was 16 it was close your eyes and, <laughs> and jerk the trigger and you know then say well the gun must be off or something because yeah. i missed him at 100 yards and but yeah he was you could tell his dad has spent some time oh, cool. helping develop him into well dad and mom but into a, an awesome hunter and a and an awesome young man cool so we're uh, what what days were you guys hunting? And the reason I'm asking is I'm going to ask a follow up question. Yeah, we hunted the sixth uh, through the ninth of October. Okay, was there any bugling action going on then? There was. Yeah, it was. Uh, and typically out here, I mean, it's a controlled hunt area. It's uh, you know probably one of the more coveted tags in the state of Idaho, and the fishing game gives out five of those tags uh, to youth with life threatening illnesses um so it's a it's a pretty special place to get to go and hunt and mm -hmm. one of the cool parts is it's a very high bull to cow ratio oh. a lot of mature bulls so usually when we're out there that first week of october time frame the elk are screaming their heads off i mean they're still rutting hard the big bulls are pushing cows there's all sorts of satellite bulls running around and this year it was a, it was definitely more muted there was there was bugling but it wasn't the aggressive bugling it was more of a, a location and get in and a couple of the bulls we got into got pretty fired up but mm -hmm. 
for the most part, it wasn't the same experience from a bugling and rutting standpoint as what it's been in the past. Hmm. Well, you know, since we did the last podcast and we talked about how this seemed to be a rather muted vocalization period compared to past years, how many people who had listened to that podcast sent us messages? Something, I'll paraphrase what most of them said was, wow, glad to know I wasn't the only one who was struggling to hear or get into some intense bugling. Um, yep. So I was just curious if it's just, you know, so many times we confuse coincidence with, you know, a pattern or a trend. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I'm until it happens again for another two or three years, I'm just going to call it coincidence. But Right now, the coincidence has been rather remarkable. <laughs> for, yeah, and I really thought, you know, with, hey, maybe it's the, the smoke that we had in September and the heat and, you know, the full moon landed right in the middle of, of when it shouldn't have and all these things. And so I was really hopeful that we would get a strong either late rut or second rut. And last year, you know, Idaho rifle season opens on October 15th. Last year, we had a whole herd of elk screaming when Sam shot his bull on opening morning. And I was just kind of counting on that again. And I've been out the last three days scouting because opening day is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same this year. The, the three bulls in the last three days that I've heard bugle have been just a very weak, I think they're all young bulls, mm -hmm. uh, very weak bugles and one and done type of a thing. They'll answer once and then you can't get them to talk again. And if they do answer again, they're way up the mountain. Like they're just like they were in September pretty much. Yeah. Huh. Uh, you're talking about all these broken tines, broken beams. Is that n normal? for that, that area where you see a lot of broken broken up? We, we don't. I think, I mean, there's a lot of bulls. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I think that there's a lot of fighting that goes on every year. Yeah. But we just, you know, every once in a while we'll see one with a broken tine or something. But I don't know in the last five years out there if I've ever seen one with a broken beam. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw four of them with broken beams. Yeah. This year. So I the reason I ask is I shot a bull in Colorado on Saturday. He has three broken points. <laughs> and when people saw pictures of it, a lot of people have commented, I can't believe how many broken beams and broken tines I've seen this year. Well, it's been a really dry year. And so in my mind, maybe somebody has done this research or maybe, again, it's just me trying to rationalize something but i wonder if drought years have an impact on the density and strength of tines and beams and antlers because it has to it, and you see that you know in in especially the desert units like in arizona and new mexico that you know those 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 elk seem to be broken up more than elk in other areas and it has to be a quality of of feed and nutrition uh, on that specific year. And we were talking about that, that, you know, it's been, we had a mild spring, you know, we had a, a slow melt off. There was plenty of moisture in the spring as they were developing their antlers. And, you know, it really didn't get hot and dry until mid June, July, August, which, you know, they only had a month or 
six weeks of, of finishing out. So you'd think that with a good early spring, it would have given them a good foundation. But yeah, there's something something to it that is definitely uh, you know affected by that weather and, and the nutrition that's a result of the of the weather. Yeah, and when I looked at where these are broke off, uh, it's uh, I've seen tines broken off that are very. When you look at the break, it's still a solid mass of of just bone and calcium or whatever it is. These ones, the all three of these, where it was broke off, it was almost like a honeycomb sort of texture or or pattern <clears throat> to. To where the break was almost like uh, I, I can't really explain it, but it it was very remarkable. Uh, uh, every person who's who I've not everyone, but so many people that I've talked to have said this same exact thing. And I'm looking at the antlers on this thing, and they just look a little different than any other broken antler I've seen. Um, hmm. But so they're know. more porous. Yep. Just. It looks almost like if you took a cross section of of a honeycomb. I mean, it, it's it's really it doesn't seem that dense. Um, and this bull was an old old bull, but he was only a five point. I mean, his his uh, the ivories were flat, and they were wow. you went and the ivories. You know how when they get really worn. They get right down to the rings, and the the ivory gets a really dark color to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just—I I don't know what the deal was with this guy. I, I saw him, and he was so cooperative to the camera. I said, "You know what? <laughs> In 13 years of doing this, we've never had one that wanted to be on camera this bad." So, I—I—I <laughs> I, I, I looked at him for four or five minutes at 120 yards while he was peeking through the trees at us. And I'm like, all right, he's only a five point and he's all broke up, but I just got to grant him his desire here of wanting to be on TV. So, uh, but when I walk, so when you see a bull like that from far and really all you can judge by is their antlers, cause he's standing in the shadows. You really don't know how big the body size is or whatever. I thought, well, this is a three and a half year old. Boom. Shot him. We walk up there, and uh, I get to looking at the body size. I'm like, holy cow, this thing's on some sort of bovine growth hormone or something. <laughs> <This thing." laughs> but he, he was definitely an old, old guy. Uh, and so I, I, at the time, and saw this breakage. I'm like, well, maybe just when they get older, maybe their antlers get brittle like that. I'd I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to any of that. But as you were talking about all the broken tines and antlers you saw, uh, that's what started going through my head, uh, what I saw in Colorado. And then the people who commented uh, when they saw that picture of how many broken antlers they've seen this year. And I, yeah. So, but then I, I, uh, I had a, a good friend that hunted Arizona this year. <laughs> And he sent me some pictures of bulls that they were hunting that had ginormous fourth and fifth tines. I mean, just the longest. And they weren't overly massive, and they were still intact, you know, on October 1st. And so you'd think a place like Arizona would be affected by the dry weather and the antlers would be more brittle. And it just wasn't the case for those Hmm. ones. Yeah, I just... 
it's kind of like one of those things, the, the coincidence thing that yeah, you may never feel. Maybe that's it. I'm just trying to shortcut some rationalization to a random pattern. And yep. it, it's the problem with being an accountant. You know, when you're a CPA, people come to you for advice and you just feel like you got to have an answer to every question. Right. <laughs> every time I observe something, it's like, well, I got to have an answer for that. So I better make one up. Oh, I know. Drought. There we go. That, that's what I'll use. I'll just say it was a drought. <laughs> but, so. <laughs> drought we, we, and you've got the list. I mean, you've got it prioritized even. You know, you got <laughs> drought and all those things. But then if those answers aren't being accepted, it's, you know. Obamacare, it's cameraman, it's, yeah, I mean, you've, wolves, yeah. Yeah, but I, this spot I hunted in Colorado, uh, I've driven by there for years and years and years, and I've always said someday before I get too old to climb up to 12,000 feet, I'm going to go hunt that, and uh, after burning 19 points in Colorado in 2016, I said, well, I'm never going to burn that many points on a unit you can draw with two or three. So <laughs> that, that's why it took me so long to finally draw this hunt. And so this year I had three points, which according to the Go Hunt Insider, every year for as long as I could find, uh, that meant I was guaranteed this first rifle tag. And I drew, uh, like expected. Uh, and it was, for me, I, I, it's kind of a, a, I don't know if it's a weird point in my hunting life, but even though I shot this bull that people are going to say, oh, you know, that's pretty run-of-the-mill bull, it was really a fun hunt. Uh, and I think because in my head, I dreamed about what does it look like there? How, Where are the elk when they're right at timberline? So the majority of the elk in this really high area we were hunting they were treating the timber line almost like a clear cut where you know how sometimes elk bed in the timber they come out into the clear cut and feed and then they go back into the timber Mm -hmm. that's pretty much what all these elk were doing in the morning you'd see them coming right above timber line there's really good feed and they'd be working their way into the timber and then in the afternoon They'd start working the way up the hill out into the open again above timberline. And uh, so I've, I've never shot an elk at that elevation. I, when we were sitting there and I glassed this one, we were sitting at just over 12,000 feet. I shot him at just over 11,600. And I've never shot an elk over 11. I don't, I think the highest one I ever shot before was in Arizona, which was at like 10,200, something like that. So. It was, it was fun to go and do it. Uh, I haven't dreamed about it and considered it for years and years. And my, my point of bringing all that up is I think people get pretty locked into, oh, I want to go hunt this glory unit or that, you know, well-known area where there's big bulls here, big bulls there. But I look at how much satisfaction I got out of going to a place that, okay, some people drew with two points this year. And, uh, I made it, uh, maybe, maybe again, this might be manufactured in my head, but I made it into a really interesting hunt. I I was intrigued the whole time I was there by the landscape, by how the elk were using that landscape here. I mean, this is a beetle kill of beetle kills. I mean, walking the, the, the trail we plan to take in there 
was so blown in with brush or with deadfall, beetle kill deadfall, that we couldn't do it. I had to turn around with the llamas and I just gave up on that trail. So we had to make this four mile loop on a trail that they kind of keep open. And uh, then seeing how the elk use that landscape with all that beetle kill and deadfall. It's, it was a, a, a landscape I've never hunted before. And I was telling the camera crew as I was watching all this and reading the sign and seeing the elk, I said, you know, this is one of the, these real learning experiences for me. I, I think, oh, I've hunted all these states, all these different times a year, everything else. Well, I, I feel like I learned a ton in, in this hunt of putting myself in a place I'd never hunted before in the type of habitat and terrain I've never hunted before and at an elevation I'd never hunted before. And I got lucky and shot one, but it, I, I think um, wrapping up my, my long winded point here, I think if people look at some of these other experiences that don't require a big pile of points to draw, you can still have a really cool hunt and have a lot of fun just being there observing and, and learning, uh, uh, throughout the hunt but absolutely yep it's, it was fun and they were bugling i you've heard me call before Corey, so you know that i'm no threat to your world elk calling championship uh, <laughs> but the, you you get it done that's what's important well that's that's what i tell people you know i i don't know that calling elk necessarily requires that you sound perfect uh, because if it did, you may as well just take it away from me. And <laughs> they, my crew, my camera crew, we're walking up the ridge to first day of scouting. And uh, I I get to this point, sun's coming up. And they look at me and they're like, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, I think if there is a hot cow out here, every bull on the mountain would come to her because there aren't many hot cows left. So I'm going to do this really whiny cow call. And I was just kind of making that up because I'd seen Corey Jacobson do that before. Whatever. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it just like Corey does. I'm going to do one really soft call without my bugle tube up. And then I'm going to break into like a sequence of three or four really whiny, high-pitched cow calls through my bugle tube. <laughs> so I did my best Corey Jacobson impression. And when I got done a bull just started screaming and he was running down the mountain and he, he, he had love on his mind. And my crew looks at me like, man, you're pretty good at this. I'm like, no, this guy, <laughs> this guy just, he wants, you know, he, he knows it's going to be a long, cold winter. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so he was coming at us so far. He came from like five or 600 yards right out in the open, right to us. And last thing you want to do is have him smell you. So we had to take off running away from him to get a, so that we didn't mess him up for the next day. So <laughs> point being on October 9th at 12,000 feet in Colorado, the elk were very responsive to calling, which I think we get that question a lot of, should I waste my time calling in October? Yep. I Yeah. And that's, I, I don't think it's a waste of time. Yeah. And the, the one I ended up shooting, I cow called him in. And like I was telling you before we, we got on the, on the mics here, uh, that guy was bugling and we had about a hundred yard opening and 
we thought, well, he'll just work his way out into this opening, and he wouldn't. He's on the ridge across the little opening, a ridge that maybe had 100 feet of elevation gain, and we could just hear him up there ripping at it. And I told the crew, I said, you know, if it was archery season, I would never do this because I know I can't get him to cross this meadow, but I bet you he'll come to the edge of that meadow, and with a 300 wind mag, uh, 100 yards, is that's a doable shot. Now, with, with my bow, no. So... <laughs> He got done with a bugle, and I did, a, again, a couple little whiny cow calls, and here he come. Man, he was just letting the world know that I'm coming. But as quick as he got to the edge of the timber, he shut up, and he stood there, back in the timber, looking. Like, where's that cow? Where is that cow? I can't see her. And obviously, if I would have had a, a, a an archery tag, I would have never done this. I would have moved back into the timber on my side of the clearing to force him to come over there. But uh, he stood there for quite a while. And then I just had to do a couple more cow calls before he'd take a couple more steps and a couple more steps. And finally, he stepped out right on the edge of the trees and he just kept looking. I mean, he had us, he was locked in on us to the point where I think he knew within two inches of where my mouth was. He was that good at detecting yeah. where the sound was coming from. But I don't think he knew that rifle season had opened that morning. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, and that's a, that's a great point that I try to stress when you're calling elk, you know, primarily for archery season, but any time when an elk gets to that point where they can see where the calls are coming from and they can, like you said, they, they can pinpoint with amazing accuracy. And when they can get to that point where they can see where the call's coming from and they don't see an elk, they get pretty nervous or at least cautious. And, yeah. you know, that's that normal hangup we talk about, that 100-yard hangup that elk do. That's usually the reason why is because they can see where the caller is is at and they don't see an elk and I'm not saying they necessarily see the caller, but they want to see an elk before they, they come in. And so that setup and the location of the caller is critical to be able to call that elk in close. Yeah. I, if I was archery hunting, I would have crossed this hundred yard opening and got on the edge of the timber so that he could have just stayed in the timber to look for yeah. me rather than, cause I knew the way, as much noise as I'm making with the cow calls, I'm wearing orange. I got two camera guys with me wearing orange. We're not faking him out. He's not going to walk <laughs> out into this wide open area. But I've seen him enough times stand just five yards back in the timber in archery season. Yeah. And, and like you said, if they get to a point where they think they can see the source of where that should be coming from, man, they just... They just take on a hold that they go from being this super excited, crazy, out of their mind elk to all of a sudden super cautious. Like, wait they a just second. Go quiet for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. You know, I had this bull and he was just fired up and he got to 100 yards and just went quiet for no reason. I'm like, well, there's always a reason. <laughs> Guarantee there's a reason. Yeah. So. I was giving some play-by-play -play to the camera as this was happening. I'm like, now, I would not do this in archery season, so don't think I'm an idiot. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I do have a rifle in my hand. So the the other thing that is kind of a bit of a lesson, and maybe we'll uh, I'll show it to you, and maybe you'll add this to the University of Elk Hunting course. But, you know, a lot of times 
you only have a few days to hunt. Like we had to cut this hunt. It's a five day hunt. We had to cut it short by two and a half days because I fly to New Mexico tomorrow. So I added two days on the other end to scout. And my point of this is the value of scouting and patterning things while you are there. Because I had all these ideas that could have been potential options and opportunities of, oh, maybe they're doing this, maybe they're doing that. By having two days to scout, by the time season opened the first morning, we had dialed in what the pattern should be, and it worked. And yep. so the, it, there's that lesson. The other lesson is I always say there's the in rifle season anyhow, there's the opening day opportunity, and then once the shooting starts, there's everything after opening day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so if you're pressed for time, uh, sometimes it's good to take a couple days to scout and roll the dice, have all your chips out there on the opening day pattern because it's what you scout those two, three, one, one, two, or three days before season. You can just about bet that the same thing's going on opening morning. And yep. that's exactly how it worked out for us. So that's great. Yeah. That's, I'm in the middle of that right now because our season opens tomorrow and, you know, the kiddos all have rifle tags here and so i've been out trying to scout elk and you know we did it last year as well but i've got two elk two bulls located just by bugles the last two mornings Mm -hmm. and that's you know that's a difference too the morning versus the evening you get there the night before the hunt opens and and find elk they might not be there the next morning on opening morning so having a couple mornings to see what they're doing on the morning hunt is can be really important and you know because of that i've got a good game plan for tomorrow and like you said tomorrow they they'll probably still be bugling like they are this morning you know just one or two bugles enough to locate them Uh, one of them's next to a a clear cut they're coming out and feeding in the clear cut so if we're on the edge of the clear cut at daylight they should you know we should have a good chance um the other one i don't know exactly what he's doing in the morning but he's bugled the last three mornings i've been there and one of the evenings so I'm pretty sure he's cool. just hanging out right there. But once that shooting starts on opening morning, it's they're different animals. Yeah. You know, they probably won't bugle that much, uh, especially anywhere close to a road. Um, and their their habits are going to change. So yeah, I I tell people the deck gets reshuffled after the shooting starts. So <laughs> get get ready for a completely different elk the next day than what you had and i I think where we were at maybe it was a little bit different because it took us six hours to hike in there and then to to our camp and then from our camp you know it's another couple mile hike to where we were hunting we we also uh, we get this question a lot and we've covered it before on the on the podcast uh of where you set up your camp uh, relative to where you found the elk. And my camera crew was asking me that question. They're like, why are we camping here? They and don't listen to the podcast? I don't think they do. They listen to podcasts <laughs> about race cars and video <laughs> games and whatever. But we actually did a segment that hopefully someday we can refer people to a, a YouTube video about selecting this camp. And we selected camp about 600 feet lower in elevation because, like we've talked about before, the morning and nighttime thermals are carrying your scent downhill. 
And I don't want to camp up on top of the ridge and have my scent blowing in there all night. And to the first spot where we got into a lot of elk sign and and called that one in the first scouting morning was about a mile. And I want to be about a mile from at least a mile from where the elk are. And, you know, it. how long did it take to walk a mile? Half hour, 30 minutes, yeah. 40 minutes, I don't know. But so there was a lot of thought that went into where, you know, why I was going to camp there. And uh, it all worked out. And so now, because it all worked out, I'm like, oh, boy, I really got this figured out. Now watch, I'm going to New Mexico. I think I got this all figured out. We won't see an elk. <laughs> our sweepstakes winner will be hey i thought you were supposed to know what the heck you were doing but so i don't want to confuse luck with skill either so yeah <laughs> but there were, there were a lot of lessons that we we tried to take the stuff you and i talk about and apply it to this hunt and we put it actually in all the video of okay here's why we're doing what we're doing you hear us talk about this let's see if it works out well I don't know if the planets aligned or whatever, but every time we do that, it worked out. (laughs) And I found myself in in archery season this year stopping and thinking – what would I say to do in the online course? Like, what, you know, <laughs> referring back, I had to re-educate myself on a few things because you, you know, whether you haven't experienced it for a while or had to, had to rely on it. But yeah, I mean, I, I literally thought, okay, I'm trying too hard here. What, <laughs> what did I say to do in the online course? And yeah, you know, sometimes it works, and sometimes it's just a matter of hey, the elk aren't here, or they aren't responding, or they aren't cooperating, and yeah, you know, got it. it, it in a drought year like this, and this is something that might come up to other people, but so we go in two days early. We set up our camp on this little lake, and it's the only water, it's the only place in this really dry year that has enough water for our llamas or if you were hunting on horses or whatever. So we got our llamas staked out. We take all of our orange panniers and hang them in the trees so nobody's going to shoot one of our llamas because down at the trailhead there's a sign that says elk hunters beware there are moose here every year people shoot moose thinking they're elk (laughs) i'm thinking wait i got four llamas there so anyhow we camp there because it's the only place we know we got reliable water for us and the llamas and here come some other guys and set up camp the next day right i mean very very close to us uh but they were good guys. They had horses, and they needed the same thing our llamas needed, and they, they stayed away from us. We stayed away from them, just waved. And they went and hunted a different direction, and we hunted another direction. And it was one of those times where your first impression is, what are these people doing, man? They're crowding us. Uh, but those guys showed some what I thought were really great, if you want to call it manners or etiquette, about public land uh i think they saw which direction we were hunting and they decided to hunt the opposite direction um, <laughs> so. that's what usually happens when people know me <laughs> they hunt by me like, yeah he's going that way let's go the other direction he's yeah, he's, but, he's gonna scare all the elk and probably push them over to us so. <laughs> but I, I i will admit i was worried at first that oh is this going to be one of those 
foot race kind of things. We're all hunting the same area. Who's going to get there? Da, da, da. And it, it worked out really good. Um, I hope they shot their elk. Uh, we never did see them. Uh, uh, they were out hunting all the daylight hours, just like we were. But the me and the camera crew were talking about how cool it was that we, we lucked out and, and the people that we bumped into had really good public land etiquette. At least the etiquette we follow is if you're there first, guess what? You get it. And we're, we're not yeah. going to come and plop on top of you or try to skirt around your edges or whatever. And uh, I, I, re- I wish I could have met him in person other than just waving to him across the pond there uh, and thanked him because uh, it could have been a different outcome. And totally. When when you hunt public land, uh, I, I guess that's one of the comments we often get too. Is you know what is the etiquette of public land? Um, well, I guess everyone has their different ideas on it. My idea is whoever's there first is kind of who gets it. Uh, yep. And, and I, I like to talk. You know, if I if I don't get there first, I like to go and talk to the person who's there first and say, "Hey, yep. you're here first. Which direction are you planning on going? You know, I want to make sure we don't mess you up, and just let me know where you're going, and we'll go a different direction and yeah, work together that way." Yeah. So we did see two other guys. Three guys had two llamas. We saw them out there, and I was thinking to myself, all right, they're this far back here. I hope only one of them has a tag, because right now they got their llamas so loaded with camp gear, I don't know how they're getting an elk out of here, let alone three of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was going to say, I was going to start asking you questions about llamas, but we did a podcast on that, and (laughs) I've got a phone call with Bo this afternoon. So I'll say, yeah, we're going to take llamas in on our hunt next week. Okay. Well, these, I, I, I will say this. There's no way I would have shot an elk. So from the trailhead to our camp was every bit of six hour hike. And then another two miles from that, there's no way I would have shot an elk back there if I wouldn't have had llamas. Because if, if that would have been a solo hunt and I shot an elk back there and I'm making three or three or four round trips, I'd still be there today packing elk meat out. Yep. No, and that's what we're looking at. It's using llamas is giving us uh, confidence, I guess, is probably the best way to describe it, to be able to go in where we're going to go. And it's, you know, we're going in about eight miles to where we're going to camp, and then it's rugged and tough country in there. And, you know, we'll probably have to pack the elk to camp. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just having llamas gives us the opportunity to get an elk out that eight or nine miles that we otherwise just wouldn't be able to do, wouldn't wouldn't consider doing. Yeah. Well, I will admit, when I saw those guys pull up with their horses, they looked pretty fresh for having just ridden into that camp compared to how <laughs> exhausted I felt having hiked in there. <laughs> so I... I was looking at those llamas like, is there any way I can rig these up with a, like a, a two, one on each side, you know, put them in a yoke and I could sit between them or something? <laughs> Part of me getting old and lazy. Uh, um, what, well, I don't know. Do you hunt areas with a lot of blowdown, Corey? Yeah, every once in a while. Not And not like Colorado. I think Colorado's the king of yeah. blowdowns, but yeah, we it's no fun. It, one of the things that was remarkable, and 
again, this is me looking at my aerial imagery and it all looks the same. People <laughs> kill after beetle kill and all these blowdowns. Well, you get there and it's interesting to see where the elk have found these little trails over time that they they navigate this blowdown. And it puts them in pretty tight corridors. They don't use the entire hillside of blowdown. They're using these little trails because you go and you find nothing. It's like there aren't any elk here. And then you come across one of their trails. It's like, my goodness, this looks like a a, a freeway. So we use those trails through the blowdowns as kind of the path to lead us to where we thought the elk would be. And it worked remarkably well. As I mean, it was such a feast or famine. You're busting through it, stepping over it. It's like, well, there aren't any elk in here. I haven't seen a track, no droppings, no rubs. And then all of a sudden, you get to these little areas where they've been, you know, over time, creating their new trails through the blowdown. And it's just unbelievable how much elk sign is there. So we we kind of use that to our advantage. I don't know if... Again, if that was a a fluke and next time I I go to Colorado or go to a blowdown area and I try to do the same thing, it's going to turn out to be a big dud. But uh, it was just something that, that struck me, uh, seeing how, how they use the landscape now that the blowdown has really altered how they can navigate across that landscape. Yep. So lots of, I don't, I don't know, I could talk about that hunt forever just because I'd never hunted in a spot like that and felt like I learned a lot. So That's cool. Pro- probably a, a more of a comment about how little I knew before I started rather than how much <laughs> I know when I finished. <laughs> yep. And that's, you know, I think we have to approach every hunt like that, that, and if we decide to stop learning and just rely on what's always worked, it's, I think we'll find ourselves pretty disappointed yeah. pretty quickly because yeah. you know there there are there are habits that we have as hunters there are styles of hunting methods of hunting all those things that we kind of you know we we lock into and we repeat that but when it comes to actually finding elk and uh calling elk and things like that it's so important to stay versatile and you know go out and try what's worked in the past but when it doesn't work don't keep trying it for seven straight days and then go home and say the elk just weren't bugling this year yeah well it might not have been bugling very good this year but you could still find ways to hunt and kill elk and so and yep. I do hear that, you know, people be like, oh, we set up camp and hunted the same canyon for eight days and never even saw a track, never even heard a bugle. It's like, okay, this is, this is on you, not on, not on the, <laughs> not on the circumstances, because yeah. I do not sleep in the same location for two nights if I haven't seen an elk or heard an elk. And Yeah. Well, it's, I, for me, it's just fun to go and do different things in different places and it, but, you know, earlier you said something about how lucky you and I are that we get to hunt a lot. And I, I agree, 100% lucky. And the other luxury it gives me is if I experiment with some new idea or some new strategy or tactic, I'm not risking my entire season by experimenting. Whereas the person who only has a week, they're not going to spend too many days trying goofy experiments because that's their whole season. Um, yep. So, uh, 
I, I'm cognizant of the fact that you and I are are blessed in getting to do this. But when I do some experiments and they work out, uh, I like to try share them anyhow. People can take from them what they want. Uh, <laughs> probably take from it. Of, this guy doesn't know the buck from third base. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true, but... Oh, well. <laughs> Fake so, it till you make it, right? Yeah. The the other thing, uh, if if you live in Colorado, uh, the talk uh, every place we stopped and people who knew who we were or recognized us, the discussion came up about the ballot initiative for wolves in Colorado. On election day, please go and exercise your right to vote. And if you live in Colorado, uh, you have a ballot initiative that tries to take wildlife management from those professional scientists and biologists and put it in the hand of the uninformed electorate. So I hope people will vote against that. Yep. Yeah, and it's, I've, uh, coincidentally, I've been listening to the, uh, Amy Cohen Barrett testimonial hearings for the Supreme Court. And uh, just as I've been driving, I have it on uh, satellite radio. And it's amazing to me how polarized our country's become and how completely, you know, two different directions that, that we're going. And it's, there's just so much at stake. You know, in Colorado, obviously, that's a huge wildlife issue, but just in general, in our nation, you know, and the, those who decide policy and everything, there's just, it's, I think we're at, at a pretty important crossroads and there's a lot at stake that, that we all love to do. Yeah. <clears throat> well, RMEF just contributed $300,000 towards uh, helping defeat that ballot initiative. Uh I think it's called Proposition 114. Uh, and that that came up on some of the social media and other platforms that I have. And I was surprised how some people were like, that's a waste of money. Okay. Um, if you feel that way, I guess so. I don't care that it's a waste <laughs> of money. I, you know, and no. I think it was more of a, hey, it's a foregone conclusion. Why throw money down a rat hole? Well, for me, I'm glad the Elk Foundation has taken a stand on it and saying, you know what, we're going to put our money out there. We're going to activate our membership because science-based wildlife management is what has been the foundational building block for this model that has recovered wildlife in this country. And I would be disappointed in any group that said, well, we'll just, you know, we'll give up on that principle of science-based management and just let it be political-based management. Now, if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I just, it, it was definitely on the mind of a lot of people down there. Um, I sure hope that Colorado comes to their senses collectively and says, eh, you know, we're being sold a bill of goods here. Yeah. Uh, you, you and I live in states where we can speak with firsthand experience that what you get told about this process and what you actually get in this process are two different things. Yep. Well, and just as, a, as an example, 
the area that we hunted, uh, we spent a few days in archery season hunting in there, and we found a pocket of elk. I mean, it was good. We uh, we got in there, and the elk were bugling. They were acting like elk, and everything was good. And on the last morning that we were in there, we found a solo fresh wolf track in the bottom of the, the drainage. Hmm. And I thought, one wolf's not enough to mess anything up you know it's by itself hopefully it's just passing through it's the only track i saw in there all season well just uh what's it been two weeks now uh there was a dead cow alongside the road and some people were out skinning it we'll come to find out a wolf had killed it the night before right alongside the the main county road and there have been four or five confirmed wolf kills of cattle just along that one mile, two mile stretch uh, along the mountain range there in the last couple of weeks. In my scouting the last three days, I haven't seen a fresh elk track and haven't heard a bugle in that drainage. Wow. And so it just, you know, it's so, we, we live it, we see it. And if you have an opportunity to hopefully make your voice heard and, and vote. If, uh, if you care about wildlife and our role in managing wildlife and conserving wildlife, uh, yeah. gosh, stay away from, stay away from letting wolves into your state. Yeah. And <clears throat> please continue to support those groups that are, <clears throat> I would say, carrying a lot of, of, of our weight uh, by trying to continue this process of science-based management rather than letting it, what do they call it, ballot box biology. Um, so <clears throat> hopefully you'll give the uh, RMEF some, some, some of your time, consideration, thought, money, whatever, for the fact that they're out there trying to do what they think is best. Uh, yep. For elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. But going through some of the elk talk uh, podcast responses, uh, which is the contact us button out at elktalkpodcast.com. Yep. You got you you run that part of it. So I, I always have to make sure I got it right. I always <laughs> ask the question. People are like, Randy, you've asked Corey this question 50 times. Don't you know the answer yet? <laughs> but uh, a couple of the questions that came in in the last month have been about hunting elk in non-migratory areas uh the the plains the foothill country the big mesa country of the southwest and how all the things we talk about do they even apply in places like that and uh I guess my first stab at it is elk are elk. They still have the basic needs of food, water, breeding, sanctuary. So they're going to use those flatter, less migratory landscapes in some way, a slightly different way, but they're going to use them in ways that help them satisfy their needs at whatever time of year it is with the least risk to predation and hunting pressure. I know that's a pretty generic answer to to what they're asking, but uh, there, I, there's really not a one answer for all situations or all locations. I mean, elk live in such varied landscapes and varied uh, habitats that you can't say that what you do in northern Idaho is going to be the same as what you do in eastern 
Colorado or, you know, the, the front range of Colorado or, you know, the foothills of the, the prairie break country of Montana. You just got to understand elk, what they need and try to anticipate what they're going to do on your landscape. Yep. I don't know. Maybe I'm making it too simple. <laughs> no, I think we make it too complicated. And that's, that's been something that I've that I've stressed for a long time is I don't want to to share an exact tactic necessarily. What I'd rather yep. do is is help people understand the why, the process. You know, I can, yeah, I can give you the tactic that works in some situations, or maybe even the majority of situations. But when you understand why that tactic works in those situations, you'll be able to find a tactic that works in the other situations because you understand why it works. And, you know, whether that's a food source, whether that is finding the cows during the rut, whether that is dealing with pressure, whether, you know, whatever it is, if you understand how an elk reacts and why an elk does what it does in each of those different situations, you can come up with a with a tactic or a strategy or a method to hunt that elk and, and be successful. That we should have just recorded that for a podcast because that's, <laughs> that is the answer to a lot of the questions we get is think about what you know of elk and apply that to where the elk are and what they're doing at the time you're hunting them and build your strategy and tactics from there rather than to think what Corey might tell you about central Idaho in September is the same tactic to use in the high country of Colorado in the middle of October. It's, yep. it's, it's never that way. It's, I wish it was that easy. It'd be like golf if it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> is golf easy? Yes. I mean, for me it is because I kick it, throw it, move it to a different lie, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, I, someday I'm gonna. Some golfers are gonna take me to the woodshed and light me up or something because uh, that's my <laughs> default answer is always, well, if it was easy, it'd be golf. You know, it's elk hunting. You know, this is this is real work here. This requires, <laughs> requires some effort, some skill, some some strategy. Golf, uh, just kick it out in the fairway and give her another whack. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, you 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 taking the kids out tomorrow? We are. Yeah, I've got uh, with the school schedule the way it is. They go in person one day, and then they have the next day off. And oh, wow. huh. as long as they have their homework done, they, they're good. So, so, so uh, who, gonna, who's, who's going tomorrow? Uh, Jesse is primary shooter tomorrow morning Okay, uh, because she has volleyball practice tomorrow afternoon. Okay, And then Sam will be primary tomorrow evening. And, you know, I think they're, I think both of them will go in the morning just in case we get lucky and happen to find two elk in the same area. But, uh, yeah. So we're going out, going out this afternoon and shooting the rifles, making sure that everything's dialed. Which, you know, this this is not me saying we waited until the day before season. We've been out a handful of times, but we're going out the day before season for a final check on everything, make sure they're both comfortable. And yeah, well, if Sam killed the bull like he shot last year, wasn't it on his birthday or something that he shot one last <laughs> so year? His birthday is October 13th, and opening day is October 15th. So oh, okay. he always says he wants to go elk hunting for his birthday. So, Wow. 
Well, he got a heck of a birthday. Was it last year or the year before that he shot yeah, that really last nice year. one? Huh. Yeah, shot a nice six point. Huh. Well, I hope that his sister shoots one this year. Yeah. Nothing personal. She shot, she shot one with her bow last year, but she's never killed an elk with a rifle. So. Oh, well, she, this is her year. Yep, exactly. Cool. So if you, when you do this, and then next week you said you're going in deep and steep, you scared me away. When, when Bo called, actually Bo called me. Did I tell you this? No. Like, what does Corey mean when he says deep and steep? I said, you don't want to send your llamas with him. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't really tell him that. I did tell him that. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's not calling me back. Maybe. But uh, <laughs> wait, so because you're going back further, do you think some of the same tactics or, or how would I say this? Do you think the elk will be a little more normalized in their behavior because of how far you're going back? And that season's already been open a few days versus if you were not going that far back, do you think that they would have changed their behavior because of hunting pressure? Totally. And that's, that's what we're banking on. We're, we actually are going a week earlier than we had initially planned. Um, and hopefully it's, it's far enough back in and then it's steep enough once you get back in there that I don't think we're going to have to worry about a bunch of pressure. Mm. Uh, I think we're going to be able to climb up 2,500 feet in elevation from camp and find pockets of elk that will still bugle. And I'm not concerned about calling them in. If I can just get one to answer and know it's there, then uh, then we can make a, a plan, whether that's sit there and wait all day for them to come out on an open ridge across from us in the afternoon, whether that's to get into the timber if he's you know bugling really good. Uh, but we can make a plan at least, and it's not just going out and wandering around like I used to do when I rifle hunted, just wander and hope to see something and then shoot it. It's, <laughs> we can still use our bugle tubes to locate elk, hopefully. Yeah. Well, I I hope you guys have a great hunt. I, I just can't believe how lucky we are to live in a country where we have all this public land and the average person can go elk hunting. I was, as I was walking out in Colorado, I turned to the camera and I told you guys, turn those cameras on. I just, I was so excited about the fact that I lived in the great, live in the greatest country in the world. And I'm here in this amazing public land and I've got a llama packing an elk out for me. I mean, <laughs> even if it wasn't with llamas, just the fact that we get to do this and, you know, you're talking about taking your kids out and then you and Donnie are going and I'm taking a sweepstakes winner to New Mexico and dot, 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 dot. There are just so many, so many reasons to be thankful for all that we have as opportunity here. Go yep. take advantage of it, I guess, is my point. Absolutely. And, uh, my wife just looked at me like, could you take any more advantage of it? <laughs> 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 Sorry, honey. She's look, she just gave me a smile. She's making homemade pumpkin bars with cream cream cheese frosting on them and then she hears me bragging about how much hunting i get to do i i I am so spoiled i can't really you ever wonder when your wife is going to get rid of you when she's going to someday get smart and realize she could do so much better yeah your wife listens to the podcast that's why you're afraid to say this she doesn't anymore Oh no! Okay. No, I think no. she uh, she's heard enough. 
<laughs> when we uh, when we were in Montana last or uh, Utah last summer at the Total Archery Challenge, we did those two live uh, Q and A podcast. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, she slipped in in the back and was sitting there the whole time, and I didn't know. And <laughs> I, I really don't think I exaggerate anything or, or make anything up, but she questioned me on a couple things. And we started talking about marriage, and and that was your fault because right. you always – you're the one that – brings up marriage and starts giving advice wow. and then you turn to me and ask me and put me on the spot and I evidently I I was uh, I was off base with something I said in that podcast because she definitely brought it up and I don't think mm. she's listened to a podcast since <laughs> mm. well I saw her sitting in the dark corner behind us when I decided we'd switch gears to marriage <laughs> advice I thought no, you knew she was no, there didn't Mm, sorry about that. Didn't mean to set you up like that. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It was something about, you know, me watching chick flicks in the off season or something to gain brownie points for going hunting or something. I don't know what she was, what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you said the rest of the year, I'll do whatever she wants me to do, no matter how much I hate it. I'll, I'll act like I love uh, it. I did. A, I had more wow. honeydews this year than I've ever had before. I did that whole uh, paver patio sidewalk out of uh, the flat flagstone. And then I built an awesome little mm. greenhouse shed and then built the chicken coop off the side of that. And uh, I've been getting, mm. and I've got a lot of firewood <laughs> already. And so, yeah, just a. Mm. I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to to least recognize uh, how much of a of a burden she takes on with me being gone. That's certainly not saying that I do anything when I'm there, but it, uh, <laughs> she uh, she carries a heavier load during elk season for sure. And so hopefully, me yeah. getting back in those ways at least acknowledges that I'm aware of that. Yeah. You're, you're a good man, Corey. I don't, I don't care what the rest of the town <laughs> says about you. You're a good man. Uh, I, I just hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because after what you just said there, she'll hold me to a much higher standard. She'll be splitting standard. firewood and shoveling snow and doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah. I'll probably just put my toe on the splitting mall and chop it off and say, see, that's what happens when you ask someone to split firewood to chop the toe <laughs> off. That's how I'll get out of that. Kind of like how I get out of get out of Christmas decorations, get out of mowing the lawn, get out of yeah. You'll you'll reach a point somewhere in your life where you adopt my theory of pay the man, pay pay someone to mow that lawn, pay someone to do. And just uh, I only got so much time to hunt and fish in my remaining days, and I'm not going to spend it doing those kind of things. But I I admire you that you still got the energy and the fortitude to do it. I just I don't. And I admit yeah. it. So, but well, I think we've kept people long enough. I'll be interested to hear uh, the update uh, from yeah. Idaho. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you the New Mexico update when we get back, and then you give me the Idaho update for you, the family, and what you and Don. Sounds like a deal. With. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll be out of pocket for the next ten days or so, but. Hey, and guess what came in yesterday uh, in the mail? Caramel Conquer Protein Performance Bar. Because oh, they came in my, they came in my mail, too. 
I I don't dare tell my camera crew that I get that many mountain up performance bars because I each let them have a couple of them and they they've been jonesing pretty hard. They're like, do you have any more of these? And they haven't asked me since they came in yesterday, so I did not lie when I said no. We're all out. But I'm not telling them we got a bunch more. <laughs> and like I told you, they don't listen to the podcast probably, so I can say it on the podcast. But uh, yeah, that's uh, I stole a couple from Donnie last week because I was out and mine showed up, and I'm restocked, and I've yeah. got four boxes of them, so I'm at least that's 40 bars. I'm good for at least 20 days. That's if I don't share with anybody. No, at yeah. least I don't think yeah. I do. But mine sure went quickly last time, so. Yeah, I I don't share. I'm not very good at sharing it. When you come, you know, I tell my crew, look, you guys are hired with the expectation you know how to survive out in the woods. I'm not here to feed you and babysit you. So don't be eating my food, man. Yep. Just don't stay away. <laughs> and so I don't ask them for their food. I don't expect them to ask me for my food. If they want some Mountain Ops performance bars like they're all asking for, then go to mountainops.com and use promo code Elk Talk and save some money and then buy yep. their own. And they send they, they put it on their expense report, so I'm going to end up paying for them anyhow one way or the other. <laughs> so I guess maybe exactly. I should just buy them. <laughs> Uh, well, and I don't think uh, I, I don't sure think you to, can I, get the uh, bugleberry igniter enduro anymore at Mountain Ops, but uh, I think I, I heard. Uh, don't quote me on this necessarily, but I heard there was a little bit left over after the September promotion, and they may be opening uh, that window up again uh, at some point, and we'll. Uh, let people know when that is because they literally just bring in bugleberry for september and it's their it's their most popular flavor so maybe maybe it's popular just because they make it so limited but it uh yeah maybe so we'll keep you posted on that one Hmm. all right well i've never tried it i'm uh, i'll have to log on like I said last time, you know, I don't want to be a tightwad accountant, so I pay full retail now. <laughs> you got to use the, the Elk Talk promo code at least. All right. Well, that'd be kind of like me using my promo code with some of my other partners and saying, eh, I just don't feel right yeah. about that. I'll pay full retail. <laughs> but, oh, well. But anyhow, good yeah, luck out there, Corey. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try my best since I'm not the one shooting. Uh, the first elk I see, I'm going to tell the sweepstakes runner, boy, that is a big one for this unit right there. Shoot that one. He's close to the road and slightly uphill from the road. <laughs> He's probably going to be suspicious of my motives. But, so, well, yep. good luck. Thanks for being here, folks. And uh, I don't know when we'll get chance to catch up again. Probably. Sometime yep. later this Hopefully month. Hopefully, right, uh, right about the time we get back from our hunts, we'll, uh, I know I'll be winding down, so I'll be in the office a little more and we can. Yeah. Good. Well, you can do all these podcasts then because my November, I think I'm home about three days. Nice. Yeah. That's what my wife said. Good. He's only home for three days this November. (laughs) (laughs) She's over there smiling and laughing. She knew. I I am so lucky (laughs) that she puts up with me, Corey. I. 
Thank you, Cam. I appreciate you putting up with me. <laughs> she she said something. I got my headphones on. I couldn't hear what it was, but I'm sure it was sweet and pleasant. But. All right. Well, let's go before I get divorced. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> well, Thanks, good luck. Folks. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>